This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Yeah, I forgot how good bluegill and crappie are. I haven't had oh, them. In- you don't. You don't eat them regularly. No, I, I don't. Um, just because one, I don't typically catch them of the size that is a good eating size. Um, and then a lot of times you're fishing ponds that that may be subject to somewhat pollu- pollution. And, and so, but this particular lake we fished, we just hit them right. And they were all like 12, 11, 10, 11, 12 inches. The bluegills? No, 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 no. The crappie. Okay. Yeah. The crappie. And they're just so good. Oh my God. Yeah. When I was a kid, the lake I grew up on had perch and bluegill and crappie and they're we thought of crappie as not on par with bluegill and perch. But since moving out west, when I catch them here, I think they're every bit as good. So I don't know what was going on, if that was just some psychosomatic BS or, or, or what. Yeah, it's like back here you hear people that prefer crappie. And then you hear people that prefer bluegill. I, I would say, I will say this. Um, the two bluegill I did keep were as a result of, of just swallowing the hook. So they were smaller, more of a pain in the ass to fillet and whatnot. But I got to say, I kind of preferred the bluegill just a, t- a hint a little, or a bit, little bit more yeah. than, than the crappie. But they were so good. I mean... I uh I breaded them with a little You're splitting hair. You're splitting hairs yeah. at that point. Yep. Little panko uh, uh Yeah. Yeah. You know uh I can't tell the difference between perch and bluegill. Yeah, I don't think I've ever eaten a perch. Well, for all intents and purposes, I I would say you have if you've eaten a bluegill. I don't. I challenge anyone to to, to tell the to tell the difference, but they're both the best. I would. I mean, you know how highly coveted halibut is. Oh God, yeah. I'm much. Yeah, I'm much more. I I not much more, but I would trade pound for pound bluegills and perch for. A halibut for bluegills and perch any day. No shit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I God, I love way. halibut. I think they're cut above, no doubt. I miss it. those days of having a freezer full of halibut, man. Um, I'm gonna go to Alaska next month. Maybe there, I mean, maybe I'll send you. Maybe I'll just send you a little care package. You know, with the perch and the bluegill. What makes them a lot easier to clean is get you a, get you a drum scaler. Oh yeah, yeah. And Do you know they make a scaler? They, it's a drum scaler. You put the I've not I don't I think you put them in the drum and then you pull it behind your boat. Huh. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I've never seen one, but I've heard of that. But mine, it's just, uh, it looks like a cheese grater. It's a big drum, but in the inside, it looks like a cheese grater. And the drum sits in a tub of water. And you fill that tub till it's about coming into the drum about an inch or two. Mm-hmm. And then you put you put 30, 40 fish in it at a, at a time and then turn the, turn it on. And it just spins real slow in about 45 minutes or they're, uh, they're filleted or not filleted. <laughs> That'd be sweet. <laughs> that would they're, be sweet. <laughs> they're scaled. Do you, uh, now, do you, like I was talking to my buddy at work, Dave, who said when he fillets them, he like cuts them like down the middle and doesn't like do all the way down, like from the spine all the way, all the way down to like the guts and takes the whole half of just a half of a fillet. How, how do you do yours? I take the whole fillet on each side. Yeah. Some people cut through the rib bones and then in a second step, remove the rib bones. But I take my knife over the top of the rib bones. That's the way I do. But I, I took it all the way down to like the bottom of the fish where, where the guts are, where he cuts his in half and just takes that strip like from the middle of the fish up to the backbone, which I understand because that's the bulk of the filet. Oh, so he doesn't even bother filleting over the ribs? Uh, he does, but he doesn't go all the way down the, like the, the side of the filet. He just cuts it in half. So just takes that top part. Oh, I'm I'm having a hard time picturing this. Yeah, I'm, I mean, just imagine you have the whole side of the fish. The uh-huh. bulk of that filet is, is, is from the, the spine halfway down, right? That's the portion that he takes. From the spine halfway down. Oh. I insert my knife right behind the head, mm-hmm. follow the spine back. Yep. Until I get behind the rib cage, poke my knife all the way through, and then continue on through out to them past the end of the tail then in a second swipe i come up over the rib cage yeah and then i have the whole flay yep what does he do so just imagine like here's here's the the, the fish uh-huh here's the dorsal fin here's the pectoral fins right? yep so he'll he'll fillet from the head all the way back Right. And he'll start cutting down over the rib bones. And then he stops right here. And then just oh. that strip out because that's where the oh. bulk of the fillet is. Oh, okay. Okay. That's fine. And, and I can see that. Yeah. I, I understand because it gets real thin, although there there is flesh there, but it gets real thin. I was just going all the way down to the bottom of the fish and taking the whole fillet like you, like you do. Yeah. I use one of those little tiny the smallest rapala knife they make and those things are such good fillet knives for panfish really oh man you could read a book through 
the fish when I get done taking the fillet off of fillets off. <laughs> no of shit. And, I, and then if you, so what I do, everybody in my family does it this way. And it seems like an unnecessary amount of work, but it actually re- reduces the work. We scale them and then head them and gut them and put it and then put them in water overnight and put them in the fridge and let them firm up and then flay them the next day. Okay. You know, it's like, it seems like extra work and it is, but the flame goes so slick that way. It, yeah. Cause they're just nice and firm. Yeah. I enjoy cleaning panfish. If I had to, let's say I had to do it this way. Let's say I had to take a fish, an eight-inch bluegill or perch, and uh, fillet it and then skin it, I would not enjoy it. That's miserable, in my opinion. (laughs) Or even if I had to scale it and then fillet it right then, I I don't enjoy that. Though that's it's better. Yeah, I but, didn't even but, I didn't even scale it. I I just that well you do it the way that I hate. Yeah, um, it, they were everywhere, and then I'm I just buy you a drum scaler. Yeah, if you're gonna get into this more, if you're gonna start doing more, I'm gonna buy you a a, a drum scaler. For crappie, you don't even need one because crappie scale so damn easy. Yeah, they got those big scales. This is the, the like the only fish I, I'll keep are like you know obviously when we take the kids out and go rainbow trout fishing for our trout season, we'll keep some fish. But the most part, I, I'm just keeping salmon, and um, you know, so to keep you know panfish is is really new for me. Uh, but after realizing how good they were and I'm like, it's opened up a new, a new, uh, food item that I wouldn't mind stocking some fish in my freezer. It is some of the best wild game out there in my view. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Have you ever eaten a rock bass? I have not. No, they're not good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> look superficially like a bluegill and they have a red eyeball yep. and they're not good. Yeah. That's just kind of interesting that you could have two, two organisms that are doing the same basic thing. They're both underneath the water, swimming around, eating, eating the same probably stuff, a lot of the same stuff, yep. but one of them is delicious. And the other one is, eh. Not so much. That's like um I've never eaten a muskie, but um northern pike are to die for, but they're bony as hell. Yeah, it took me forever. I wasn't I was a grown ass man. Well I was well well after I was a grown ass man before I learned how to put the Y bones out of a pike properly. Yeah. We caught them in in Alaska, not not as much as we probably could have, but uh, we caught and, and ate them in Alaska, and then um, we went to Canada on a on a trip one year, and that's all we ate. So I haven't 
I haven't done it enough to be proficient at it. But yeah. As far as table, oh fare, yeah, if you, they're so good. So, yeah, very, very, very good. Guys, you make a lot of pickled pike, and we ate that growing up too. But I don't like it anymore. Really? I just finally came to grips with the fact that I just am not down with it. I used to like pickled herring a lot when I was a kid. They would mix it with, um, or they you'd buy it at the store and it would be cream. Oh, creamed herring, but it would be pickled. Mm. You ever have that? I have not. Maybe I'd like, maybe I'd like creamed pike, but I don't like, I like pickles, but I don't, I, I will eat pickles by themselves, but I do not like anything pickled. Like anything, like I can't eat a pickle on a burger, a sandwich. I, I don't like anything combined with pickles. So I'm you're assuming not a puckery. You're not a puckery brine man. Mm-mm, nope. But pickles on their own, I love them. But but I can't eat them with anything. Well, so I guess the way you'd say that is you like cucumbers and vinegar, but you don't like anything else in vinegar. There you go. Yeah. Not even asparagus. Um, I can't say that I've I've had it. Um, no, I can't say that I've ever eaten. Like pickled asparagus or or with vinegar. How about green beans? Nope. I bet you'd. I mean, I'm gather if you haven't tried those two, I I'd be somewhat optimistic that you'd like both of those because they're pretty similar to a pickle. Yeah. He, here, if you're if you're willing to hustle where I live, you can get all the wild asparagus you you could ever want really yeah yeah it's not you know it's not native it just grows feral wow i didn't know that yeah oh there's probably a bunch right now because we've been getting so much rain i should go look tomorrow i cook all my my greens like asparagus green beans broccoli i do them all the same just fried garlic a little bit and then and then salt, pepper, and that's it. Mm. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Although once in a while, if I get I just have a a ton of asparagus, I'll I'll pickle some. Yeah. One time I had. I live out in the out of town now out of the town of mile city a few miles and now that i have packed llamas and this place requires so much upkeep i didn't i don't have a garden anymore but when i lived in town and didn't have llamas i had a garden one time i made 38 quarts of pickles off two cucumber plants holy shit yeah this place is this area is really good for gardening wow yeah, um, and this the sad thing is like all our cucumbers come at the same time. You know, so we have just a a bundle of just, cucumbers. You have to you're gardening you're a gardener? Yeah. Yeah, we have a, a pretty decent sized garden, yeah. Mm-hmm. What I would do is I would just put them in a crock in the fridge with some vinegar and water until I was ready to hot water bath them and then I'd hot water bath them. 
Gotcha. One of my best friend's dads has has perfected the art of canning pickles. My mom and dad used to do it when I was a kid, and they were always super mushy. Mm. But he figured out how to do it and keep them crisp. So my mom and dad would hot water bath them, you know, where you add the brine to the jar. Yep. yep. And the, that's the way we you, did it when we when we when we did it. Yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't do it that way. He gets the jars piping hot. And the brine super hot. And then puts the pickles in, keeps them at room temperature and puts them in, puts everything else in and closes the lid. And they they and they they'll seal like that. Like you're operating right on the edge of what's possible. It's like borderline not enough heat. Yeah. You know, but it barely is if you do everything right. But as long as you get that suction, you you should be good. You're right? good. You're good. Yep. Yeah. Then you're good. I'm uh, I'm having some. We're having a little picnic tomorrow, and I'm gonna cook some antelope. And I know antelope is hard to cook on the grill because it's so lean, and I know it could dry out real quick. Oh, I I go ahead. So I was okay. gonna. I was thinking of making like a little, um, like a little uh, aluminum foil boat and cooking it on the grill in the aluminum foil boat with a bunch of butter just so it doesn't dry out. Is it, are they steaks? Yeah. I would, you could try that. I've never tried that, but I have fantastic luck marinating them in some olive oil okay and a little bit of vinegar and whatever spices you want to put on the them for a half hour and then doing them hot and fast right on the grill right on the grill i'm it's that olive oil. If you marinate them, you know, poke them with a fork a little bit. Uh-huh. And that olive oil, if you if you pull them off when they're medium rare, I I I, I don't think they'll be dry at all. I, I do everything all because I think all all game meat has that same Yeah. Yeah. You run that and that's how I get around that is that is marinating. Okay. You know, uh, I'm gonna try and yeah. Maybe try some in butter and try some like I'm telling you. Yeah. But people love my grilled game steaks. Everybody that has my grilled game steaks compliments me on them. And that's what I I do. I don't think it has to be olive oil, it could be vegetable oil or avocado oil or whatever. Yeah, I like avocado oil in, in olive oil. Not so much vegetable oil, but mm, yeah. So yeah, that's that's one way you could try it. Yeah, I think I'm gonna do that. And then, if, have you ever heard of this? Uh, it's it's Snyder. The brand name is Snyder, and it's a it's a rib seasoning mix. Mm-mm. Um, 
I don't think I've seen it here, but my buddy that lives in Arizona, oh Rico, Rico and his buddy Bill, mm-hmm. um, they turned me on to it. They get it out in Arizona. I'm sure you could find it anywhere, but I, I just haven't seen it in Pennsylvania. Um, but this seasoning mix to put on a steak, I mean, I had people that don't eat game meat devour steaks because it's so good mm. does it have a bite to it um it's almost like a like a like a montreal steak seasoning mix oh but it's just oh. it's better it's 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 better I, it's just um but it's it's supposed to be for for ribs oh you're reminding me of you're reminding me of how I realized that that's the way to deal with game stakes maybe 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Is that so Montreal? What is that Montreal seasoning? What is that? I don't know. It's just a combination. I mean, we've had it forever. My parents used to get it. There's a, a spice pack you can buy at the supermarket called Grill Mates. Yeah, I've seen that. Yep. And they have a Montreal seasoning, but all all of their seasoning packets call for a little bit of vinegar, marinating the steaks, and a little bit of in that in that seasoning pack, and a little bit of vinegar and, and olive oil. And uh, that's what turned me on to the power of a little bit of oil mm. for getting your game steaks to come out juicy yeah well i'm gonna try it so if it doesn't go over well blame it on you (laughs) oh man this is such a fun conversation i can't believe we have to dig into a bunch of data i know i know i almost feel like oh maybe we should just talk about food and bypass this (laughs) because this could honestly be like a nine-part series podcast with the volume of data and 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 stuff we could talk about. Yeah. I added on we were, the plan was to talk about the National Shooting Sports Foundation's 2021 report entitled Assessing the Quality and Availability of Hunting and Shooting Access in the US and it still is. But I I was having a hard time keeping interested in that report. So I did also dug into their, their 2019 report, uh, the NSSF again, Americans attitudes towards hunting, fishing, sporting, shooting, and trapping. And I, I don't, you probably I told you I was going to look at that one too, but you yeah, I did not look at that one. Okay, so I'll, maybe we could start out with that one. Well, no, no, we'll start out with the other one, um, and then I'll the tell one. You what the I one was. we're looking at is from 2021, and they did one in what 2019, and they did mm-hmm. one in 2010, right? Well, they also have one in 2017. That's the one I'm always citing, the uh, Practitioner's Guide to R3. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And they have other ones. I'm, I they have many others too. 
they're more focused on who owns guns and and what kind of guns they own they're the they're 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 the lobbying arm for the for the i've heard it said that they're the lobbying arm for the um firearms industry it's not it's not nra it's nssf really wow so they're like the uh silent strong arm behind the scenes because i think when you think about the gun lobbyists you think about the nra yeah okay yeah but i don't know what the guy i was i heard at this podcast with this guy that works for them that he said no it's not the nra we're we are the firearms industry uh nephi cole is the guy's name and he's a he 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 works he's like a R3 coordinator for them. And he was the one that I heard say that. Oh I heard him say that on the BHA podcast. And he was like, No, it's not the NRA that's the lobbying arm is for the firearms industry. It's National Shooting Sports Foundation. And then he said no, that's what he said, but uh the he was talking to Hal Herring, who's the pot, the host of that podcast, the BHA podcast. And David Fontenot and I just interviewed Hal Herring last night. Oh, right on. All I do all I do is podcast anymore, which <laughs> is, is ridiculous. What, your, your fourth or fifth podcast this week? Yeah, it's insane. It makes no sense. It makes no sense because it's not it's not necessary. We're trying to put out one podcast a week and you're hosting every other one. I should be podcasting once every two weeks. In which well, case like the qua- in which case Go yeah. ahead. No, I was going to say it's a catch 22 because you want to have like a backlog and you want to free up your summer and fall months so you can hunt but then you 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 run into this roadblock with like you're posting episodes that are 3 months that were recorded 3 months ago and sometimes that's a detriment to mm-hmm. the listener yeah for sure and, and i have enough i probably i don't know i haven't counted them up but i probably don't wouldn't have to record one until a year, a calendar year from now, I got so freaking many of them. And then you get into this weird position where you think, well, maybe I could just not air some of the shitty ones, but then that feels like a slight to the people that were on with you. Yeah. You know, it took, took the time and, but not every podcast's a home run and, but you got to take the good with the bad and, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, to I'm toying to with the idea of saying, having it be that we're going to record a conversation tonight. This is what I say to my interlocator, but that doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to put it out over the airwaves. It just depends yeah. if it, 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 it depends on whether it's or not. It seems to me that anybody 
anybody would ever want to listen to it. Well, I, I think just from like our private conversations, bullshitting on the phone have been, would have made some of the best podcasts that we could have produced had we recorded them. Yeah. When they're bad, it's not the, it's not my guest's fault. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. It's not my guest's fault. It's mine. I'm just a moody, moody, moody person. I don't know how somebody, I don't know how these people that are the top podcasters do it. Like of uh, Lex Fridman or Joe Rogan or, or Coleman Hughes, etc. Where everyone is good and they're always uplifted and positive. Yeah. It takes, I guess a- maybe that's why, why they're good podcasters is because they're extremely unique in, in that they're always upbeat. And always curious. Well, and uh, and all and that they're smart. So they have two traits going for them. They're incredibly bright, and then on top of that, they're also they they have a a generally positive disposition. And and I also think too they they prepare because that's their their job, and they're getting paid to do it. Where we're just doing it out of desire and goodwill and and you know it is fun i'm not pretending like oh if all i had to do was prepare for a podcast that was my nine to five or yours could you imagine how much you could make podcast in your bitch (laughs) i mean if 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 you had the time to prepare and research more than you do or I do or have the free time to do because we're not getting paid for it. I mean, that's I think that's what why those guys are so good because they are well prepared. They know their guests. They have an idea of the questions and the concerns and they're um they're knowledgeable on the subject matter. I think that helps a tremendous amount. Yeah. But I think Plus, most people podcast with the goal of being entertaining and may, well, you, you know, there's uh, that's not entirely true. I, I kind of take that back. If, if, I, if I think about what Joe Rogan does, a lot of what he does is, is socially conscience podcasting. One in four of his podcasts, like he just had some dudes on for, again, he, these are reoccurring guests from the innocence project. I mean, it's interesting stuff, but it's that it's entertainment value is secondary to the importance to society of bringing to light how many innocent people get incarcerated. Yeah. I think of that, but with us, all of our episodes are that way. All of our episodes are. There's no intrinsic entertainment value. They're all about the problems we see. Yeah, I think that probably the most the most closest episode was the one where it was you, John, me, and Rico 
because that was the most alcohol I'm pretty sure that was ever consumed collectively on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, I try, I personally try to make it entertaining um, as best as I can, but the topics of each episode are not, <laughs> they're just not, they're not, it's not geared towards entertainment. It's not storytelling. Right. Yeah. It, it. Yeah. There's an element of it's, 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 it's identifying problems. It's having opinions about them. It's, it's coming up with kind of solutions and, and clarion calls and, and, you know, um, that's why I guess it's like kind of nice to just turn off the, the burners for a little bit and just sit back and, you know, talk food and fishing and <laughs> grilling, which, which we've been doing for quite a while now. So maybe we should dig into this stuff if we're going to do it. Yeah. I, I was going to say it's good. I mean, I could get behind the R3 uh, uh, push from the shooter sports because uh those are the guys that 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 fund wildlife conservation so the more shooters the merrier let's just not push r3 for hunting <laughs> and there's a limitless supply of shooting yeah opportunity yeah, yeah. so that's r r3 movement i can get behind yeah yep but even a lot of fit well a lot of some fishing is not you know, crowd, crowding is not an issue. There's there are over exploitation issues. Ooh, trout streams out west. Crowding is a big deal. Oh, I bet. Same thing in Alaska too. All the road accessible trout trout streams, especially on the Kenai Peninsula, man. Ooh. Yeah. Are uh, what do you you want to you want to get started? How do you want to do this? Um. Do you want to like? I didn't print the whole thing out because it was very long. Um, but I, I printed out the finding pages. Do you want to go through the findings and just talk about some of the I, things that jumped out? Uh, yeah, I could talk about things that I I've, I found noteworthy. Yeah, let's in the do con it. in in the context of a of the hunt quietly mindset. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so we're talking about again the NSF NSSF report assessing the quality and availability of hunting and shooting access in the US. It was published in 2021. And the first thing I found interesting was page 30 where there's this is all sir everything we're talking going to be talking about tonight is survey data and the it, there's a chart there and it says it's asking the question of the respondents do you hunt mostly on public land private land or both equally in the state you live in and the respondents, there were 1,688, 1, hopefully randomly selected respondents from the U.S. And 
a little over half of them said that they hunt mostly on private land and uh, 20% said they hunt a little of each and the other 25% said that they hunt mostly on public so i was i th- i th- I, w- I didn't know that i'm not surprised by that but i didn't know that it it appears that you know half the hunting in these in the country based on this i, I guess half the number of hunters which i don't know if that translates into half the amount of hunting because maybe the people that hunt on public hunt more or less than people that hunt on private but little over half of the hunters hunt mostly private land and what that made me think was that potentially that gives me a sense of how how little what we're trying to do is going to appeal to half the hunters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, not necessarily, but cause there's, there's mitigating circumstances. How many of these people are leasing that land and, and how much does the cost of that lease depend on how much hunting promotion is going on? Yeah, for example, and and that was one section of this that I actually felt a little bit positive in our efforts, uh, because one of their stats were like fifty nine percent of hunters who hunt private property hunt properties that they either have family members or they know somebody. And so the type of hunting that we're we're trying to to keep alive, where you can knock on doors and the, and it's still available, you know, sixty percent of the the hunters surveyed still do that. Um, and then another sixty percent of the fifty six percent that hunt private land primarily. Yeah. So that, uh, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. So a third, roughly, if that comes out to about a third. And then another um, 22% hunt their own land. Yep. Um, and then while that leaves, you know, what's it, like a, a third uh, in the other category, which would be the guys that are hunting private land but are leasing it. So I know that's... Yeah, I did a little, like, there's some conditional probability stuff going on here. So you have what percent hunt private land and of that what percent of that subsection hunts their own land versus leasing yep and and what i got when i when i drilled down into this and did a little math on it what i came up with is that out of everyone all hunters about 10 percent of hunters hunt mostly their own land this is out of everybody now yeah not just people that hunt and what i and then what i got was about five to ten percent of all hunters hunt 
primarily leased land. You said up to you said ten percent hunt leased land five five to ten percent five to ten percent based on the calculations I did on what the report you you have to consider multiple graphs. Yeah, yeah, you have to dig deep. Yeah, almost have to have. I wish they had broken it down that way. Yeah. How, what percent of hunters hunt leased land? But you have to do multi. Okay, sixty percent hunt, fifty six percent hunt private. Of that, fifty nine sixty percent are hunting yeah. on places that they know the landowner. And of that, you know, so you, yeah, there's, this, there's all these if then statements. But, but I I felt mean, I don't know how did you feel? Did you feel positive about those stats? Because I felt like when I was reading it. And I'm thinking that our efforts, we, we can get in front of this. Uh, I just had that feeling as I was reading it that maybe this this whole effort to 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 do what we're doing just to kind of save the the local guy knocking on doors or you know I felt that that it was it's not in vain that there's there's some hope to get in front of it. What did you think? I, why, what, what, what about those numbers gave you hope? I'm, I'm curious. I just, I just thought that more of the subset of the sample size would be leasing. And, oh, that's, that was the, the summary that I took that, wow, that, that that's not as much as I thought it would be. I kept, I kept being struck by how little in this, enormous report 377 pages mm-hmm. bears directly on what i what i take the issues to be it it it, it it's relevant but there's a lot missing so base what i got when i ran the like I say, when I ran the calcul- calculations through, I came up with between 5 and 10% of hunters hunt primarily leased land. So there's l- multiple interpretations of that. I, one f- side of me says that what that means when you look at the huge number of acres that are leased that there's only five to 10% of the hunters are hunting there. Yeah. They have it all five (laughs) to 10% of hunters have all that land for themselves. Uh, Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm tracking you. So it, it, it's, it has a lot to do with another enormous issue in the u.s which is income inequality dude i was just gonna say can you just think about that wrap your head around that the amount of money that five to ten percent are throwing at leasing that is a lot of coin yeah well there's all these stats like one percent the top one percent of People in the U.S. have some ungodly percent of the wealth. 
I don't know if it's 15 or 30 per 50, I don't know what it is, but it's a huge percentage. So in the same way, I would imagine that some small fraction of the hunting community has a large percentage of the quality hunting opportunity. Yeah. And then the next thing that's that's stuck out at me, there's a lot in here. First, they give overall statistics, and then they break it down by region. They'll break it down in other ways as well uh, by, by all kinds of um, th- things like like race is a thing that they break it down by and and if you're somebody that hunts mostly private what are your feelings on of those people that hunt mostly private what are your feelings on blah 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 you know so there's there's they i'm just focused on the overall statistics but there's a tremendous amount of deal detail in here i i take issue with whether or not they're asking the right questions in the first place in a lot of cases but yeah there is a true go ahead but uh they they do they they all of their statistics are of the form here's how here's are the percentage of hunters that think here'd be an example access is a highly important issue and then It'll be how many, what percentage of hunters that live in the West think access is a huge issue in the East and the South, you know? So, yeah, I just try to give people a a sense of what the report contains in it. And and that's the way I felt too. The the two things that jumped out at me is that they, they are asking the two, two most pertinent questions in my opinion are, are access. Are you, are you, you know, your thoughts on access, uh, and then, um, hunter satisfaction. That was the other thing that, you know, you could make a correlation between the two, which, and I, I, again, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of research on hunter survey, but typically you don't, you don't see those, those two questions asked on a lot of the, the surveys. Yeah. So the next thing that I focused on a bit was, Please, this is page 39, if you're following along, please indicate if each of the following are to um, this is level of importance in parentheses to you when deciding where to hunt in your state. And the first, the top category is land that is not crowded with other sportsmen. When I say top, that's the one that came out on top in terms of level of importance. So 92% said that trying that land that wasn't overcrowded with sportsmen was uh, a major consideration in dictating where they hunt more than any other thing. The other things were land that's easy to access, 
yeah. by foot. Close to their like house. You, yeah, land that's close to home, land that's easy to access by car or truck, land that's familiar to you, land that is private land. Land that you could drive a truck or ATV on. Yeah, any land that you can hunt your dog on. Yeah. Above all of those things, land that's not overcrowded with other, other sportsmen. Yeah, and there, there was even dominant. a subcategory about other recreation. Yeah, yep. Yep. Uh, so, not surprised by that in the least given my experiences that 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 i mean that is definitely what dictates where to a large extent where i choose to go hunting so um yeah i i saw that like 92 percent um they say one factor that stands above all others as an important consideration when hunters are choosing where they hunt the land is not crowded so 92% um, said this was either um, very important or somewhat important. Very important or somewhat important, exactly. 71% said it was very Yeah, and 21% said it was somewhat important. So I, I wish the question would have been more like, Hunting lands are overcrowded. Agree or disagree? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just would have been more direct that way. Because maybe they're six. Like, this doesn't leave out the possibility that they're successful in getting away from crowds. Trying to find places that aren't crowded. They make, they trying to find places that aren't crowded. That's their top priority. And maybe they're successful in finding those places. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like it, a lot of it has to do with logistics, a lot of it has to do with how you prioritize things. And like with any, any aspect in life, a lot of it has to do with the individual hunter and how they take action. Yeah. I, yeah, it's not a bad question. I, I'm i too tired to think about, not in the right headspace to think about how I would word the question differently, if I would. But, yeah, it's informative that it's a huge consideration. And it's it's not lost on me that NSSF prioritizes recruitment. I mean, they are a huge recruitment engine. That's what they do. Well, and and you've said this before uh, numerous times, and and it, it jumped out in my head. It's like, you know, you got ninety two percent, and you can infer that that this would be across the board given every hunter, right? We took every hunter that the number yeah, it's would, not it's not a stratified sample. It's yeah, it's the whole shittery. Uh, it's the whole every all the whole melting pot of hunters. The the how this stat is essentially ignored by the industry when ninety two percent deem it 
the most important thing. Is the spot yeah. I'm going to going to be crowded? Yeah, it cannot be argued that recruitment, hunter recruitment, is is making it harder to obtain what 92% of sportsmen consider the most important factor. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> there you have it. Uh, then the next thing that s- s- stood out to me, page 52, scrolling now through pages and pages of graphs to the next kind one that yep. I, this one is, the question is, do you agree or disagree that lack of access to hunting lands in your state has caused you to not hunt any species as much as you would like in the last five years? So 45% agree that they have hunted less for their preferred species because of a of lack of access. So if you had any doubt, you know, lack of access is is so bad that people are switching to other animals to hunt or just flat out staying home and doing something else. Um rather than than going and hunting the thing they would prefer to be hunting because yeah, I, of lack of access. I, I've seen that amongst my own own hunting uh circle of friends where you you guys that I've lost touch with um then you run into them you've been hunting nah man I lost my spot and it's just, mm. it's just a headache you know to try to find somewhere else and I don't want to have to kiss someone's ass to get on their property and you know, I hate going to the game lands because it's too crowded. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad that I I haven't gotten to that point as pro- probably a product of where I live. And it's I could see it getting to that point here. And I'm sure for a lot of people it already is because you know when i go hunting I, I go for a week or two at a time so i can really tr- get away but for a lot of people that are trying to hunt on the weekend or something i'm sure this is already a reality a reality out west where there's lots of public land is it you're like i'm going to choose to do something else today choose yeah. to do something different today because um i just don't have the areas that that would make this productive that I can go any longer. Or, or I know a lot of the guys that I've talked to have changed their approach where hunting the opener is not so important. They'd rather have less animals to, to, to potentially harvest and enjoy the hunt with less people. I don't know if you've seen that in your, your circle of friends where uh i not temporally as much but for me at least i'm sure there are people that that i know that forego opening weekend like you say but for me it's more spatially i have switched to mountain ranges that have 
probably 20% of the animals that the mountain ranges I hunted 10 years ago, ago have just to get away from people. Yeah. So I'm hunting in places that where there's maybe one fifth the elk per square mile as places I have traditionally hunted just to have some, just to have some chance of getting away from folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I could see that. <clears throat> uh, then the next thing that I found interesting is on page 114. Man, this thing is a beast of a report. It's just page after page after page after page after graph of graphs. I know. Please indicate if each issue has been a major problem for you, a moderate problem, a minor problem, or not a problem at all for you in the last five years when hunting. Uh, in in two thousand, and this is longitudinal data, so they measured this at two points in time. Uh, so, in two thousand ten, having to travel too far to hunt was a problem for about twenty five percent of respondents and then two years ago so 11 years later it had gone to 43 percent from 25 to 43 percent people are having to travel further or they're less pleased about having to travel further uh in in 2010 access or leasing fees were too expensive 23 percent thought that was the case and then more recently, 36%. So, and then if I look at, yeah, so those are two, and there's just nothing where, in every case, with all these categories, uh, road closures, not having ATV access, can't retrieve harvest due to ATV restrictions, unable to find a place to launch a boat. There's many, many categories, but in every case, uh, it's the problems are worse now than they were 11 years ago. So I, that struck me. Yeah, that's not surprising at all. I would, I would, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah. One thing ha on that note is that I was surprised that what was the stat on the number of whitetail hunters? Nearly four out of five hunters sought whitetail deer, 79%. And that those hunters who exclusively hunt whitetails are less likely to travel long distances. What's this now? Say that. What page is this one on? This is on the the findings. Um, page two. Oh, page two. Yeah, from in the findings, major findings from the hunter um, access survey. Characteristics of the hunting participation. Deer is the most hunted species among hunters in the survey. And wild turkey come in in a distant second place, 
Nearly four out of five hunters sought whitetail deer, 79%, while eight hunted mule deer. This is distantly followed by wild turkey, 40%, and all their species are at 28%. And what was the stat you cited again? While 79% of hunters are considering themselves, I guess, whitetail deer hunters, and it goes on to say those who primarily hunt whitetail deer are less likely um, to travel long distances to hunt. So, oh, yeah, I guess that's because they're so ubiquitous, right? Yeah, like the whitetail deer are so ubiquitous that you don't you you shouldn't be you shouldn't you shouldn't have to travel far because they're everywhere, right? You don't you don't miss prime dates in Pennsylvania to go to Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> like, like some people do. <laughs> yeah. And then the last thing in the report I found interesting was the age breakdown of hunters, according to the survey. And what page is this? 134. So what I see here is that the age distribution as this is the mainstream view and this accords with the mainstream view that that uh, hunters skew towards being older. Um, according to this thing, to these data in this report, like 75% of hunters are older than 44. And that got me to looking at some of the other reports. So in addition to NSSF, the Fish and Wildlife Service does similar surveys and so now according to this this survey 75 percent of hunters are older or in their mid-40s or older in 2016 it was 60 percent and in 1991 it was only 30 percent were 45 and older so uh there does seem to be pretty concrete evidence for the mainstream view that the mean, the mean or median age of hunters is is getting older is older through time yeah and I, that's that's used a lot to justify that argument is used a lot to justify our three, our three effort yeah our three efforts uh i i think and i'm not obviously qualified to do this but you've made this comment before and, and while that stat may be true and relevant 
you still have a crowding issue and it comes down to available acre per hunter and that's that's a deep dive um, yeah yeah you know some other graphs i'm not discounting this it actually gives me some hope because i think that the that that the, the, the num that uh the hunter population sh i would think it'd be a good thing if it shrank i think it'd be a good thing for the resource and i think it would be a good thing for the hunting for those that are interested in hunting that are, that want to hunt for both of those for both the resource and for the existing hunting community i think it'd be a good thing if it shrink but there's a lot i mean there's a lot of it would be a shame to to interpret the fact that the mean or median age of hunters has increased through time in a vacuum you first of all at the most simplest level couldn't that could just be explained by if through time people got into hunting later in life like people take up hunting in their 40s more now than they did and they used to pick it up in their 20s more in the past that could explain this pattern yeah that sounds like a social uh a social experiment so, but, but I mean, that's an interpretation of these data, right? Yeah. That's, and that's, that's and, and I don't know if that's the right one. It's the, it's either that or that, um, a bunch of people got into it in the past and now, and less people get into it, got, have gotten into it more recently so that now the, the average age is older there's two interpretations and I don't know which is correct. You hear this phrase adult onset hunter all the time. It could be purely explained by instead of people getting in, into it when they were young, now they get it into it when they're middle-aged. And um, it would only take one simple question on these surveys to find out what, at what age yeah. did you start hunting? Did, did you start hunting? That would, that'd be yep. a great question to ask. That would be, I would love to have a conversation. Maybe that'd be a good thing to do would be to reach out to NSSF and, and there's a, there's a, there's a contractor that they hire responsive management. Yes. Yep. Uh, and, 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 uh, see how, if they'd be open to asking some additional questions, I'd love to know longitudinally through time how has the how has the mean income of hunters changed oh, i think it's like, gone up for sure yeah well and it's gone up for everybody so i guess you'd want a, a more precise way of asking would be have hunters become more wealthy compared to society at large 
through time, you know. You know, I, I, if it, maybe it used to be that it was um, a pursuit primarily enjoyed by people in the lower quartile of sure incomes, but now it's more centered. But it's just a weird thing to think. It's a hard thing to think about because people of that have extreme wealth can have such an outsized role in dictating access and opportunity for everyone. Well, and just one person with a one billionaire moves to Montana and buys a hundred thousand acre ranch or to Pennsylvania and buys up. 3,000 acres, I'm sure, you know, land there is way more expensive per acre. That, And you don't need nearly as much land in Pennsylvania as you do in Montana to get started. Yeah. That it, it's, uh, it's, it's like extreme outliers, like extremely wealthy people have this disproportionately huge effect on the rest of the hunting community because they can just lock up so much land. And it's like a, it's like a, the snowball effect. And it just mm-hmm. spreads out from that one piece of land that's locked up. Yeah. You know, and it, and it could be, it could be just the opposite for properties that allow access or get pounded by hunters. And it, that trickles out to the surrounding properties. Yeah. You know, in a, yeah. you know. Yeah. In a weird way, it has an uh, uh, an, an effect on it. So, the, I mean, I don't want to, I'm trying to be better about just construing everything, every data point I come across as, as um, confirming my suspicions. And so I don't want to, I don't want to equivocate too much. The fact of the matter is, yes, the the hunting population, the hunter population is older now than it was in 1991. It's older now than it was in 2016. And that's something to be considered. It's just that there's there's other considerations as well. So and I think these are the questions that need to be asked and need to be taken into uh the next survey, the next time they do this survey, hopefully yeah. somebody's listening or hopefully we can reach somebody. Yeah. Hopefully the industry folks that are listening to this podcast, cause they all do cause it's on their radar. Now I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Everybody listens to this. Podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, if you are listening, hopefully people start to, to realize that this shit is important. And while, it might not be uh, front and center. Ninety-two percent of people think that the crowding is 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 an issue, the number one issue. Yeah. Yep. And what are we going to do about crowding? Hunters for access, baby. I, I I had a conversation with somebody from NSSF trying to get them excited about hunters for access they 
they they thought it was great work, but they didn't they didn't jump to help us. I also had a conversation with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and they, n- neither did they jump to help us. Um, somehow, we we've got to demonstrate some success with it, and then hopefully, other groups will see some potential there, like we do. Could you imagine if other nonprofits started to see some potential there? What we could maybe get done then? Yeah, I I think you're just getting started, man. I think Hunters for Access is 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 has more potential because it's just so important and it's something everybody could get behind. It's something every everyone should be behind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just got to keep pushing for a while and 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 try. Started in Montana. Just... You got a Kansas chapter, some yeah. other chapters that are in the works. I'm sure. Yeah, just got to keep pushing and not get discouraged and see where that goes. You know, so I think that now we've been going for a while. We talked about perch and bluegill and and speckled bass for so long that uh, maybe we should hold off on the other report. Why don't we record another one about the Americ the NSSF report, Americans' attitudes towards hunting, fishing, sport shooting, and trapping? Um, that could be an, our next little data podcast. Is that all right? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Okay. All right, my friend. Any other thoughts on this report? No, I think it's a start, and I think diving into this is is uh, is is good good for the cause, and it's good to talk about, and and hopefully others take note on what's important to to the the everyday hunter. Yeah, and kudos to NSSF for gathering some data. You know, yeah, um, a I, lot of data. Holy, a lot shit. of data. Yeah, hopefully they someday they start to. <laughs> listen to what their data is is telling them <laughs> but and work on access and not on r3 but, um yeah they need to make a correlation between their r3 efforts and the data they're they're gathering yeah yep. all right my friend we'll talk again soon thanks all right matt talk to you later buddy